0: I could go first. Um, Yeah, obviously nobody wants to be called elitist and nobody wants to take the elitist position here. But uh, unfortunately, uh, I think I have to, uh, although I am not like avid or excited about like tendencies and the discussion or scholarship of art or even the art market uh, itself, I think generally art is the best of um, when it's done for its own sake and not like the purpose of like social engagement, political activism, or anything uh, else. That is just for me uh, because I think art is a typical is a special way of engagement with the world and with the things around it that just like is inherently, not suited or not like fitting uh, for the purposes or ideas that go with like political engagement, wanting to change the world, wanting to change minds, or uh, like a deep em- emotional investment in the world.
1: Okay, I'd like to add that art is the only goal of filling uh, under someone's skin. I mean, uh, understanding how other people feel, how they live, and it gives you um, much better under- understanding of the world overall, uh, which is very important for a more just world.
2: Uh, I think it. makes some very good points here about that. Uh, our art is very persuasive and emotional, and there it's often there's a distinct connection between the artist. Um, I. I think it's important to point out, though, historically, at least um, a great part in Europe, a lot of the lineage of art comes from is particularly just from uh, the church. We see a lot of um, art that just rises from sculptors being employed to make uh, statues for churches or paintings of Mother Mary or icons or or whatnot, and that is a very integral and important connection to the social institutions of Europe. where we, we see that people aren't making art for necessarily art's sake or or for themselves. It's not necessarily a personal expression, but we still consider these a lot of these pieces to be masterpieces. Um, lots of them, you can go around in Europe and see them in museums or, or even the original churches themselves or, or cathedrals. Um, and, and these are masterpieces. These people who've worked on these have honed their, their techniques and their crafts, and there's been major development in these artistic techniques that these people strive for without having to do it for these, you know, very personal goals. Although you could argue that religious purposes does make it very personal.
3: That's a very good point because when you look at the history of art, all of it comes down to patronage. And I, I think for the longest time, the uh, greatest source of patronage was from the church, was from the, from the Royals. Uh, and they would, Commission art pieces to be done, you know, for ceremonial purposes, for religious purposes, in the um, creation of churches, the uh, creation of religious paintings, of uh, statues to commemorate uh, national heroes, and so on. And so you really see, especially in Europe, this tradition of of art um, as, as being as being as really being just commissions, really just work and the artists having to find a way to express themselves through this work. And so when you look at you know, the modern day architect, when you look at um, the way that they have to take on clients, they are unable in a sense, unless they are very, very famous, but to do that you have to be either very talented, have the right connections, so or simply work very long in the, in the, in the industry. Um, you see that there's this, there's this um, tricky dance which you have to do in whereby you're balancing what you want to do as an artist as a designer and what your client wants and whether or not you fulfill um that fulfill the the obligation that you are being paid to to do and so that was very much what art was like uh for most of history um, besides prehistoric i think um in asia you don't have you have a similar theme um but where art was really more artisanal, was more, uh, I think, specialized. And you had these workshops, especially in Southeast Asia, where people were commissioned to make these ornamental uh, pieces because they would take a long time and they would be shipped to, I mean, well, they would be transported to, um, to I suppose, the landowners and those who had, had money. Uh, you know. So that's an interesting point. And it is true. About what how art, what it used to be like, especially in um, you know, most of human history.
2: I think you raise a really good point here about the the very integral and long lasting connection between uh, art and money. Often, what we see is like whatever art or, or artistic movement or or you know the greats of the the period are propped up are the ones who were funded. Um, we see these, you know people are only able to do such great pieces because they have someone backing them and and the art is costly, for example, Um, just being able to make in these churches um, the paint used for specifically reserved just for uh, Mother Mary, this very special blue had to be mined um, from and extracted from lapis lazuli crystals um, somewhere in the Middle East. I think it's Afghanistan or something. I can't quite remember, but this was really costly. It it cost, uh, it was the most expensive paint and that's why it was reserved just for the clothes of Mother Mary. But this blue is integral to this idea of the cost of art and you could tell um, the, the value that was placed upon it. So there's this, not only is the art um, connected to the money and the means that it needs the money to make it, but you can also see the value of the art through the money, and I think we can also see that um, it's a lot easier now for for people to make art of their own. With you know the rise of the digital, it's a lot easier for people to just make their own things. Um, the the kinds of required materials or the bar is much lower. You just need you know a laptop or even a phone, and you can make something. And I think that's um, created a great proliferation of of people making art but that also uh, does raise the question of what is the true value are these the people i mean surely these these people are making great art but if they're not recognized for it is the money really what's responsible for propping it up and this is again to the, the ivory tower argument is this is elitism involved in this
4: and you know i think the extra interesting thing about that is that when you um put that into the modern day context where um, you know, you'll, you'll, you have a lot of people like uh, Martian who uh, really don't like uh, abstract art and uh, just postmodern art in general. Um, it kind of, and, but that's that's the stuff you see in, or that's the stuff you see quite commonly in um, museums these days. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I forgot what I was going to say, actually.
3: No, no, I think I think you have a point that I think um, there might be this disconnect yeah you know, because art has been in a way um, democratized and so everyone can make art but in in trying to I, maybe when you look at the the history of the twentieth of the twentieth century and you see more and more people being able to uh, to essentially access art both um, as a, you know both through paying for it and through making it. Uh, I think there was this move. I, I'm quite sure there's this uh, there's this attempt to gatekeep and to preserve some kind of elitism uh, within art, and uh, uh, in in trying to distance themselves and trying to innovate and trying to push push what high art could be. I think that they push themselves into a they back themselves into a corner, and that's why we have people who disagree with abstract art because they think it's simple fluff and that the piece is you know the praise of the piece the concept the concept of the piece is not warranted by the piece itself it is is essentially warranted because you write something uh on a on a plaque and you put it before the art and that that's what gives it meaning instead of the art instead of the meaning being self evident in a way so that that's a good idea
2: i i think there's also um something to be said with this these leads try to dictate the art but obviously it's with the democratization of art there's you know so many people can make it and so many people are now the viewers and and have some kind of say in what art um they like and what they want to see like you know martian doesn't want to see uh any abstract art and that's fine but i think that this comes uh interesting into play with the the rise and and some might say fall but the the I think a better word is the, the co-opting of the street art movement. you see artists like banksy uh or, or space invader uh, I think that's his name um but they they started out as street artists they would you know go around graffiti stuff and then you know they'd be tagging um Shepherd ferry, another example um but uh, they they gained fame and and eventually that that led to this kind of integration into the art world where they were no longer just going out and just graffitiing they were making genuine pieces of art are genuine in the case that like people would pay millions of dollars for them. They would rip up a wall to take off a piece of a Banksy and sell it at auction. Um, but beyond that, there's this concept of what started as art for art's sake or, you know, these people were just going out and it, it was illegal going up and tagging a building. What they were doing was vandalism and the, the ethics of that I don't want to get into, um, but they've become Sort of integrated system they were once rebelling against with this um, co opting and and eventually just selling of their own art. Okay, I wanted to say uh, a society
1: of the spectacle. So, what I mean is, uh, well, we said already that um, art changed our history in the way that. it was more about form before because it was rather elitist. I don't know if you see the point here, but uh, I mean, uh, in in the times where art was just patronage, uh, it um, was much more about form. And now when everyone has access to it, it's uh, rather about content. Yeah, and uh, in fact, in fact, there is so much of content that uh, I don't know. It's too much for me, honestly. It like starts watching over itself and like uh, you know postmodernism and so on. It's very tiring.
3: Yeah, I think. Um, well, oh, Trez, you want to say something?
5: Yeah, I think I I feel what. Um... Martian was talking about, like you can see what um, this uh, equivalence between form and content, especially in audiovisuals, like uh, the films or documentaries, and the American type of film where, you know, you cannot uh, understand uh, time or the the cracks between time and space. Like everything in the montage is so uh fluid, so it makes it um uh, flow. And you don't have to think at all while you while you see it. You just digest it, you get the story, it's all about the story, only the story. In the end film uh, the film ends, and that's it. But um The thing about elitist and uh, political art, I think it also has to do with uh, the media, except the museums, which I I have really no idea how it works. Uh, The media of uh, television or of cinema, where the production money goes, like who is choosing, which is the audience, and what does the audience want to see? Like um, the American type of production, just uh, assumes that the audience is a consumer that is consuming a commodity. So, how can you make art in this context, really?
3: Yeah, that's a good point, and and it's good that you bring up film. Uh, I think there's a lot of threads going in in and out right now. Uh, we have, you know, Martian talking about uh, postmodernism and 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 so on, and you bringing up film. I find it very interesting how the, the debate on art is now shifting away from just tech technically the, the technical aspects. Previously, you know, there were only a very few going back to the the history of art. When you look at, there were only a few skilled painters or skilled um, craftsmen at the time. And you would likely have be part of a guild, be part of a, um, you, know, you would know who your, your contemporaries were and you would know who was in the schools and who would be coming up and who was the master and so on. And now part of uh, the democratization, I would think, is there's this, in a way, because everyone can make art. And the idea that everyone can make art has been embraced by high art even. So you look at Andy Warhol and you look at pop art and the way he essentially showed how celebrities in themselves have become commodified under capitalism and so on. That kind of break, break with um, the traditional, not only the break, but the acceptance of the break and the integration of the break into the way people understand and appreciate art. Um, I find that we are moving towards more of the content, as, as previously said. And that's a bit more interesting because content will be a little bit more uh, difficult to pin down, unlike technique and so on.
2: Uh, I, I think, uh, in a very good point, you bring up the idea of how it's, you know, it's been co-opted the idea that everyone can make art. And I think, you know, obviously uh, Andy Warhol and the pop art movement was after Dadaism, but I think Dadaism also kind of, there's some great examples of, you know, Marcel Duchamp's I. Uh, don't remember the exact name of the piece, but he just took a a, a urinal he found on the, the side of the road, wrote a name on it and a date and he called that art. And it was obviously at the time there were some, you know, disgusted reactions to it. Uh but I think it's, it's that is the kind of this this perverse idea that of anybody can make art where you can literally just take something off the side of the road, put it on a pedestal and call it art. Or there's also the you know, um a bicycle wheel on a, a stool um but it, it's something anybody could make and I, i've been into plenty of museums where i've seen stuff and I, I obviously there's something way deeper than just saying oh i could make that but there's this kind of not necessarily lack of technique but this complete just abandonment of technique uh to prioritize content or, or just the idea where I, there's this this one museum, d i a Beacon. I went there and there had this this permanent exhibit, uh, which was just string tied up from floor to wall, just kind of crisscrossing. And it was, you know, very simple, but it was something literally anybody could do. Um, and obviously, There's no technique involved in that. Of course, maybe you got to have a ladder and and be able to, like, tack up or glue string around. But the bar is very low, and that's passed off as high art that can be put in a museum.
1: Okay. Uh, So I wanted to say about what defines art. It's quite a simple question, but still. So uh, Javin said uh, an interesting point about when you put anything in gallery and it becomes art. So what really defines art is people. Uh, Is When we look at things as it is art and it becomes art. And now everyone uh, looks at everybody as uh, like an object. Everyone uh, becomes art and it sucks.
3: Did you say it sucks? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Indeed. <do. laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I think the problem with a lot of this democratization is that while it's allowed a lot of talented young artists, or well, not necessarily young, but artists in general, to become um, to get a chance, you know, uh, to be famous, to get their art out, to produce something worthwhile seeing. On the flip side, it is also uh, produce a lot of random stuff. And the problem is that sometimes this random stuff gets put on uh and then called great and um I think we can get more into this later, but if you understand what uh if you've heard of sturgeon's law, which says that ninety nine percent of everything is terrible, then I think it has um some application to art, maybe not ninety nine percent but I think a lot of a lot of art being produced is i mean it's fine if you don't want it to be serious, but if you take it seriously and it's still produced like that well uh, yeah, might be some problems there.
4: Yeah. I mean, going into further into democratization of art, um, especially when you have uh, market forces working uh, beneath that and uh, really motivating that. What what's what? It's not necessarily democratization. It has more to do with um, you know, some opening up of access through. Um, you know I, I you know I went to Walmart to get myself a some pencils and uh, a sketchbook um, and you know spent maybe like 10 fifteen dollars on that I don't know if I would necessarily call that democratization um, especially when it comes to things like access because there's also things like trends um, that you need to follow there are Connections that you need to follow. There are certain perspectives that are more prioritized than others. Um, and something else I w- wanted to add when it comes to abstract art right now is that, um, you know, a lot of people talk about how they can do this the thing that, you know, if they see a painting um, and it's just a blank canvas with a line going across it you know anyone anyone might look at that and be like oh well i can do that um but i think what they miss is that a lot of times um any kind of highly conceptual sort of art isn't necessarily about the technique of course it's about the concept Um, And sometimes there's a lot more about the thought process and um, the the thought process and uh, the journey that, you know, took someone to make that line um, and call that art for some reason.
2: I think uh, Slime makes a, a great point here that often with this conceptual art, there's, you know, or or this this newer, more abstract art, there's a lot of thought behind it, and that's not necessarily something you can see just by looking at it. Like before, where you could tell the true... uh, Of course, there was still uh, subtext and, and, you know, a lot of stuff going on underneath uh, just the surface of a a piece of art. You could look at it, and you could admire the technique or or just the the complexity of it or even maybe the simpleness of it, but just the the pure... um, craft uh with conceptual art we've we've gone you know there's conceptual art that's so out there it's it's the art itself is literally just for example Solowit, his wall drawings. I hate Solowit, but that's not because of his conceptual art. It's because I hate the colors he uses. Um but his art is these wall drawings. What he does is he just makes instructions on how you should create these wall drawings and then he sells that as the art piece and then museums will have a team of people install it themselves and sometimes it's, you know, they'll be describing, cut up this uh, this wall into six sections at the midline, make a, uh, a mark two inches below that, draw a circle with a diameter of 15 inches there and it's, it's these kind of very arbitrary and um descriptive of ways of describing you know just they're just instructions um but this is he's not really he, he did make some of his own pieces but this conceptual art is, is just beyond even the physical aspect of it there's no tangible art to really think about obviously when it gets put up there is but the the, the thought behind it is what really was the piece behind it for example uh, another piece i'm sure many of you probably remembers the banana that was duct taped to a wall um obviously you'd think well that banana is gonna go bad and then i'll have to replace it is it still the same piece and the answer to that is yes because the piece itself is actually just the certificate that says duct tape a banana to a wall and that's the art so um I, i i think that was Particularly, the message behind it is that this is so arbitrary, and he was able to sell it for like what three hundred thousand dollars or something. Um, but the, the point of it is that he was able to get away with it, call it art, and it was just such such an out there thing. Um, there's no technique. There's not really much content in what you actually look at and see in it. Uh, and some dude, some another artist comes up and eats it and that just further extends this just kind of bizarre postmodern reaction um, where another artist can go up tear the banana off the wall and eat it and then call it the starving artist
3: you know i think that's no that's that's, that's a really good point you know i think there's this this it's a dual edged sword to me there's this sort of fascination with what can be done with art and the kind of uh, freedom and, you know it's just it's just crazy that such things can happen and that such things in at one level we can we can appreciate them as as spectacle we can appreciate them as art too we can appreciate the concept and the concept does make sense and we can see how that concept is being drawn out but at the same time it also feels like posturing to a degree because essentially anyone can do anything and there is if everyone can do everything then that can in a way I Maybe maybe in a in a way it cheapens the experience because anything can be made into art and if it, if anything can be made into art then what what is art really and if if I can if I can just stick something to the wall and say oh that's art and that and that can be recognized as a maybe a perhaps you know a, a great a great work of art then what does that how does that how does that how would you characterize that how do you categorize that compared to other Previous masterpieces, and then we say, "Oh, these two things are the same. are These two things equivalent." And slime brought up a very interesting point just now about democratization and access, and I agree that access is not necessarily democratization. And when you see the um, who holds the powers to the to the art world, so to speak, it really is you know the big galleries. It really is the big big name artists and the people in the cultural centers cultural cities of the world Uh, if you no matter how good you are if you have no connections and you're working in a small village um you know you're, you're more than likely not going to get your art put out and so while there's been this idea of democratization whether or not that has actually you know come to pass is a different different thing because everyone put their stuff up online the problem is everyone is everyone's doing that and so if everyone's making noise how do you set yourself apart how do you make noise wisely and so that's another dilemma um that comes up just you know, it's not just access alone so that was interesting
0: yeah i think uh i could like add to that in a way because um it brought all up that art or especially modern art is not much more about like the abstract um, content or concept uh, rather than the materials, the technique and the form. But that is also like a form of like elitism because then the question is who judges art, which concept is good, which is bad and who essentially decides about that? because with like classical technique you can do that rather easy. here uh, is like especially good. Uh, use of light or this one uh, uses like symbols, very intricate but with modern or abstract art, who is to to judge that like one art that should express the concept of let's say love is better than another one and here you need what is essentially like a recognized authority that is uh, as Thomas said, expressed to like power uh, in the art community? Would, uh, would it be like to through money, which is like patronage or uh, the price of an art piece or like its exposure in galleries or like recognition by other artists?
1: Okay, yeah, I wanted to say that uh, nobody defines what is good. I mean, everyone decides for themselves and like this is postmodernism for you I guess and there is nothing bad with that just like modern uh, I don't know literature uh, just asks question questions and doesn't answer them uh, you should answer them on your own yeah like this
0: well if that's that might be true like in concept of post uh, postmodern art that is uh, for the viewer to judge or for the individual to judge what is good. But uh, practically, we, uh, we still have like this distinction between what is good art and what deserves to be uh, put in the museum, deserves to be bought, deserves to be uh, presented in art galleries or which is like bad art. Uh, so although this, distinction in concept of postmodern art might not be be there. It certainly is in its practicality.
4: It seems to me that a great deal of art um, now has a lot to do with um, making statements, um, bringing about social experiments, and um, bringing in larger discussion, as well as a lot of uh, commentary on society, uh, the art world, um, political issues, etc., um, which is how you get these, uh, big interactive, um, art installations and how you can, um, get these big, uh, just, uh, pieces, uh, that involve, uh, people doing things and interacting with the art and seeing how people can, um, almost like play with it it's kind of a
2: form of play in that
4: in, within that respect
2: i i think slime brings up a, a very good uh, uh notion here is the idea that um in, in this this post uh state of art that there's this aspect of play in it and, and in fact the viewer is sometimes invited to be a piece of the art um that there's there's the art has transcended just the single piece and gone into including the viewers or the reaction to it. Or, you know, for example, a lot of um, performance pieces um, require, you know, they, they require an audience. Um, there's an interaction being used here. And I think you could say that often there's, there's in general, a lot of art is an interaction. There's There's ideas being transmitted. There's a a form that people are, are taking in, um, but it's, it becomes a bit more literal. There's messages in it in, 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 and the, it becomes art once someone starts looking at it or interacting with it. And I think not only, I, I think we could say that uh, in the state of art right now, we have a large depth of interaction with art um, in in the multi- the multiplicity of forms we can see it in now, whether it's you know digital sculpture, um, you know, two-dimensional art. There's there's so much um, art out there now, but there's also I think a very large lack of depth to it as well that we see with the digitization and the commodification of it. That there's there's so much of it, um, and and even how it becomes kind of a status symbol to either own art or be able to look at it. You know, these museums, they're in cultural centers, all the great pieces are in, you know, museums that whether they're free or not, it's still to be able to be there is a bit of a a status signifier. Um, um, For example, I I know a lot of museums now are, are struggling with this question of whether they should allow photography. And obviously there's the idea that, you know, a lot of them say, we don't want you to have any flash on because that'll damage the art. But a, a bigger question is the interaction. How well are you interacting with a piece of art if you went there to take a picture of yourself with it? If you're using it as a status signifier, are you really interacting and, and engaging with the ideas that the artist um, intended you to, to interact with it with? Or, or even you know, outside of the artist's intention, are you really seeing it as a piece of art if you're just there to take a picture with it. And we see, you know, lots of museums have asked this question and some have come to the conclusion that, no, we don't want you to be able to take pictures in here. It devalues the experience. And in fact, you people who come in and do this aren't really even engaging in the art. Um, And that it's their, their experience is so focused on themselves that they don't even remember the art or or um recognize it
5: i have something more like a question because we're talking about uh, democratization of art like is art democratic if it is confined into the museums like the high art we're talking about the one that is thought provoking and especially now during the pandemic that uh, you know, museums are closed. Most of us are just in front of a screen most part of the day. And we may, um, yeah, watch videos or movies. And uh, how much thought is what we see on our screen? Is it art? Do we see art in our laptops? Like, I wanna ask also you guys. Personally,
1: I think we do, but I won't elaborate.
3: <laughs> well, then I'll, I'll say something short. Um, in, in that case, uh, I think, well, when you look at when you look at you know what art has been for the for the past you know few centuries, thousands of years there is a sort of clear, well, yeah, there's a sort of clear uh, progression in terms of technique, in terms of ideas being represented in art, and the art and the use of it. For instance, you have, you know, when you go back to really, really early illustrations, there is no sense of depth whatsoever. Everything's flat. And not only that, everything is, there's no detail. Everything is, well, it's, it's very um, crude in a way. And as you go through the centuries, you kind of see this progression in terms of what people are able to do with technical skills in rendering not just reality, but higher ideas through images. And so I think we might be at a point in history, very interesting interestingly enough, where we do not have enough history or progression to make sense of um, new new types of art like like conceptual art and so on. And so there is no, in a way, there is no, uh, there's not enough basis for us to make comparisons. Because when you look at the way, you know, people look at art and, and make comments about it, usually they say, oh, that's very good. That, that's been done very good. Compared to what? Oh, compared to this person, compared to that person. And then, so there's this kind of dialogue. And through dialogue, we are able to say, Okay, that's been done before, that hasn't been done before. That's been done a lot better, that has been done worse. And so conceptual art, I don't think we're at a level, it may take maybe 100, 200 more years before we're actually able to say, okay, well, this was done, you know, 50, 100 years ago, and, you know, it was so much better done. And this person has, is essentially a, a cliche. There are no cliches yet. Everything is new. Everything is too new, so to speak. Uh... But just, just to talk shortly about my own experience, I, I, think, um, I think it partly goes back to this point that I don't, there isn't enough discussion about this for me to, um, to really say, oh, if I see art on the screen, is it still art? What kind of experience is it like? Because uh, the influx of, of you know, modern technology of computers and, and visual art pieces is so recent that even that in and of itself, I cannot say uh, what's art, what's not art. And so that would be a very very interesting thing to see through our lifetimes, um, how up. Art...
5: Sorry, so you don't think that film is art?
3: Well, I, I think I think film is art. Film is art. If, um, uh, but film shown on a screen as opposed to being shown in a theatre, that kind of the difference in the type in the kind of um, experience. And you know, Martin Scorsese would say, oh, there's a very very big difference. There's a very, very big uh, difference in the experience and therefore that affects the art. And this dialogue, I think that will have to take a few more years, a few more decades, because film is still very young as an art form compared to painting, compared to sculpture and so on. So be very, very interested to see how it goes. You know, people are very are very uh, quick to say, oh, oh paint uh, film is uh, at the end of its lifespan, or oh, we're going to see something new come up but no, I don't think that's very fair. When you look at you know, the sense of history, um, art forms, mediums, you know, can take de- can take centuries to mature. And I think we're only just getting started on what film can do.
5: Yeah, I, I agree. But there are also, in the museums, you can see films that you can find also in the internet. So what is the change in the experience? Like the environment or the fact that you pay in the museum or in the cinema while you don't pay from the internet you may don't pay
3: That that's that's probably a good point when you have to pay for something i suppose you would want to have something out of it more definite out of it but um, i i perhaps perhaps i don't i don't think i have an answer for that right now but that's something that was definitely something interesting to look into
5: it's cool. I don't think we're searching for answers anyway.
2: Back to the idea of this, you know, the, this lineage or age of art or our mediums developing um, these, the ability to compare. I think certainly wait, right now what we see is a very large um, stress on originality or doing things different, thinking outside of the box. You know, everybody's pushing to... Do something that's never been done before um this this progress narrative and you know there's kind of this abandonment of you know why i should push this medium forward as opposed to i should change or, you know people are thinking what can i do in this medium that's never been done before as opposed to what can i do in this medium that's been done before to show that i understand the medium or or that i i have a, either a new understanding or better understanding a different understanding or a technical mastery or or these kinds of this intimate relationship with it um for in um the you know eastern chinese brush paintings there's in general a lot of chinese art um there's this very big focus on you know the whole idea of copying the masters instead um and also until relatively recently in the Western world, there was this idea of, you know, you get good at art by forging it. You know, a lot of uh, sculpture masters like Michelangelo, Donatello, um, they got their start forging art. Um, but the idea that like this, by copying what other people have done or, or actually really engaging with what has already been done, you get an understanding of why it's done. Uh, and I think one of the best things I ever heard said about the, the medium of, of ink brush painting in China, uh, particularly you know landscape painting, is that it's not about pushing or thinking outside the box, but it's about doing the best you can within the box. It's this total mastery of technique and understanding. And certainly there's some outliers and things that were, look different than others. Um, but it's still just, it's a very recognizable medium. But there's still so much richness and and depth to the pieces themselves uh, and the art form itself that you can understand that, you know, long, long history, of it it allows you to compare them and understand the strengths, the weaknesses and what's actually going on.
1: Okay, so Jaren said about uh, Chinese art being about um, making the best you can do. In the box instead of getting out of the box, and I would say that this is about uh, old art overall. I mean, even if you take like 19th century, I don't know, uh, like uh, Shishkin is a Russian painter. Uh, he just has uh, very good landscapes, and they are really good. And nobody in modern world can paint even close, but they are just these landscapes
0: yeah um, also relating to that idea of uh the importance of technique or mastery, uh, especially with European art, there is uh the problem of uh, the overemphasisation of like technique because uh what we saw in the nineteenth uh, century european uh industrial world was. The focus of technique in this uh, genre that is called uh, historical paintings or historicists and they are very detailed, very well well worked out in uh, technique, but um, just empty uh, in, uh, in terms of compact. They're just like.
2: I, I we've we've been talking a lot about a uh, uh, visual art, um, and I think we have some people here uh, who've you know trez, trez has tried to uh, bring up the idea of film and i, I we also have uh Hammurab, who's uh quite well versed in in um poetry that i i think it'd be interesting to hear your takes on maybe the history of poetry or how it compares
6: yeah so i mean it's an interesting segue for for whatever reason tonight as it is night for me uh, I haven't been so interested in in the history of things necessarily, but I have been thinking a lot about the way things are today and something that has always concerned me and continues to concern me, especially because of you know my Instagram account and the time that I've spent there and the work that I've put out there uh, m- more in general though having to do with this democratization and everything uh, with streaming services and social media and all that the fact that First of all, you have generally a collapsing of, of of art and content where these things are almost synonymous um, for at least a lot of people. And that to me is a bit concerning. On top of that, you have these incessant, instant flows of, you know, air quotes content. Where where every once in a while there is art and it's buried. Or maybe drowned by all of this, just this, this, this more superficial content, and, and these things are equated very often. They're they're valued similarly, or in some cases, content is valued more highly than art. And is that right or is that wrong? I, I you know, I wouldn't want to take a stance on that because that's you know highly subjective. But what I will say is the way that we consume information and the way we consume art currently worries me because we may have this rich history, various rich histories, and various rich mediums, and some are more young and some are old, and we can compare and contrast different pieces. But at the end of the day, if everything is being washed over by all manner of content, we're never going to have the time to sit with anything and actually you know take it in because by the time we've done that we've missed scores of content and the small pieces of art buried within
4: yeah i'd say building off of that right now we have what is a uh, cacophony of um the world just moving much more quickly um, the world being as interconnected as it is, as well as um, the increasing nature and inc- increasing pervasiveness of um, the spectacle, um, the quote-unquote democratization in within what is really a greater hierarchy, so it's really more just um, when when people say democratization, what it really what what they really mean is with this greater spectacle and with this greater interconnectivity, there is more to see and more to look at, and you know there's more be more people being exposed to different things. Um, when you have all this stuff going on right now, where people are trying to just do as many things differently as possible. It is a throw things at the wall and see what sticks kind of scenario. Um, This is also combined with, you know, even greater market forces influencing certain kinds of uh, trends uh, where profit is more important than anything else um, as well and yeah there's there's the spectacle nature of it where you know people really want they want to have their 10 minutes of fame um or you know they really want their voice to be heard and they'll they'll say anything to get it
1: yeah slime said that um a lot of modern art that's trying to get out of the box is just uh throwing Things at the wall and see what sticks. And I'm actually not sure how to uh, think about this. I mean, is it good? Is it bad? What's our opinion, guys? Uh, so, I, the things I'm not so sure it's bad because uh, it's just a way of exploring, just <clears throat> trying different things and
2: seeing what sticks. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, about this idea of, you know, throw throw whatever at the wall, see what sticks. Um I've my, my own art professors have, have told me sometimes uh that the, the trick for people to get famous or really kind of the 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 detriment of people's fame is that they do whatever they can and as soon as they get one hit. Everything after that is just a derivative of that one piece that blew up. So once you get something good you're pretty much forced to keep repeating that idea. And obviously that's not true for every artist you see, but in general, even if it's something they're, they were extremely talented in, you can see a lot of artists just abandoned that to go for what was, was selling or got them notoriety. And then maybe later in their life, they came back to it because they, they had all their fame and then they were done with it. But this idea of, you know, you're very dictated by a style or, or like, you make one thing everybody likes it, and then you're kind of stuck into that mold.
3: Yeah, there's a lot. I think I think we're entering the territory of, of you know the phenomenon of art and and well, really, being a bit netter in how and how you know the art industry actually plays out, and how uh, you know because we look at artists, we all like to think of them in terms of narratives, in terms of their life stories and, and the progression of that. Oh, they had this period in their lives where they produced this, and so on. But in reality, it's really a lot of work, and at the point in time they did not they didn't really know that they were making a period they didn't know that they that this work would have would become part of this greater canon of their of theirs They were simply you know um, work, just just uh, working through it and hoping for the best but I would also like to you know bring in this idea of objectivity in art. and and while there's a lot of subjectivity. I think the fact that we can look at elements in art, and we can point to elements such as, oh, that has a nice composition, I like the way that they've used colors, I like how the brush strokes look, the fact that we can, in a way, point to these objective ideas and understand each other mutually means that there is some level of objectivity, there's some level of common ground for discussion. and I guess I won't go too deep into it because you know, it's a long conversation, but I would like to say that I think there is some measure of objectivity. And from there, whether or not the objectivity can mean anything meaningful or whether it can change anything, that's a completely different thing. But in essence, I think there is some kind of objectivity in art, but uh, that's, I think that's another conversation entirely.
2: No idea how much time we have left, but I want to pop this out. So there is, as a formal student of art, there are these you know very basic design principles that you you name some of them like composition, form, um, and these are very easy uh, and formulaic ways of talking about art. They're a great way to compare things, but I think after a certain extent they also kind of break down um, once you get into these very postmodern pieces. So it's it's a very useful thing that you know every every artist's edu- education goes over these things. So they're very objective way of measuring these things. But there's also subjectivity to them and how you use them, uh, how they go well together. Obviously there's contrast can be good or bad. Um, so it's, there's objectivity to these categories, but not necessarily in how you use them or combine them.
1: Okay, and now I believe it's time to change thesis. So I'll start and you expand. So recently I had a conversation about nature of inspiration, and I had a point uh, about uh, we, what emotions are the source of inspiration. And my point is, you uh, can't create art when you are happy. Because um happy means that you are calm, you don't really care about things, uh, and um, and any content uh, could be created only from bad emotions when you suffer. So yeah, that's it. I wanted to talk about inspiration.
4: so. I know a lot of people like to put that forward, um, that you have to be depressed to be good at art, but this is, that is more or less just a romanticization of bad mental health. Um, happiness, it, as a concept is more of an abstraction anyways. Um, there really isn't like one way to be happy, and I I promise you that like um, I promise you that happiness isn't just uh, you being uh, calm. But you know why 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 can't art have a sense of calmness to it? Uh, why does suffering have to be the primary driving force of art? uh if especially if you know people want to make expressions and express themselves um i mean there's so many um especially like the romantic period um that was just interested in nature so much a lot of that a lot of those paintings they don't really or as well as just impressionist paintings in general they really don't I mean they can talk about sadness and things like that but a lot of them just really enjoy um painting scenes and uh building up things in different ways
5: so i'm not uh, making art myself but uh, i'm into writing when i'm ready for it anyways but i would like to make a differentiation between inspiration and the kind of birthing process when you're making this piece. I think inspiration can come like after a happy moment. Why not? Like you have maybe a pleasant memory and you wanna recreate it to understand it better. So this can be happy, this memory. And after the memory, you can immerse yourself into thinking or putting yourself um, in front of various different emotions. But uh, maybe, Martin, you were referring to this unhappy situation that comes in the birthing process. And if you were referring to this, I would agree that uh, when you are So immersed into a thought and then you take it to the practice to giving it form and content. I think this is a a process where you kind of lose yourself, your ego, your me. And um, you want to feel vulnerable to your environment.
2: I think this uh, is... Distinguishing between uh, the, the inspiration, or maybe what arises, like the the idea of a piece, or what makes you want to create something, as opposed to the the birthing process, the actual creation, is a a very a important distinguish uh, or a distinction. Um, I I make my own art, and I feel that like I have moments of inspiration, and I think it may not be true that like you know depression is a, a mother of inspiration. I think what you might say might be more accurate is intense emotions give rise to these, you know, these ideas or inspiration. Um, But I definitely feel the idea of, you know, this this depression or the sadness um, from the birthing process. Sometimes it's, uh, I like to work digitally. Sometimes it's because I can't quite translate what's in my head um, into the digital aspect or the digital format. And I feel this, you know, I, I either my my skills aren't good enough or I just can't quite grasp what I wanted um and then there's just this sadness that it feels like yeah like i I can't make what I want to make. other times if I'm doing something that's more physical it's it's i think there's this melancholy I feel when I do make something and it's over um and you know the, I get so absorbed in in the the process of creation and once that's over this just this emptiness of, of i've you know, basically like spat out this, this great idea that I had, I've transformed it from inside myself to outside of myself and now it's gone. Um, and it's just the, the, I think there's also something to be said about the, the very, um, the act that it, once you have something that's made, the, whether it be tangible or, or digital, there's this kind of temporality to it um, where I, I feel this melancholy knowing that now that it exists it can also at any moment i could you know my data could be corrupted i could you know break my laptop it would be gone or a piece could get ripped and this amazing thing i I made is now no longer what it used to look like and it's it's ruined
6: um yeah i really appreciate these kinds of insights into people's process or you know Perspective on their own work. But I'm still trying to piece together exactly what I'd like to say. On the topic of inspiration, I suppose it's a very mixed bag for me. Sometimes the things that inspire me are very, very minute details that are so ordinary that they're, you know, very often overlooked by most people. But for whatever reason, they just seize me. And there's an infinite amount of ideas that just pour out of this very you know basic thing and i run with it and then sometimes i'm gripped by a very very overwhelming concept and then i just try to chisel away a small little piece from that large concept that i might be able to put into words um when it comes to happiness or sadness or any of those things i do agree that i think it's just the level of intensity definitely plays into how inspirational the emotion is. I think positive and negative affect both can inspire. Uh, I do also think that when after inspiration, when the, you know, the actual birthing of these works occur, very often for me at least, it's then the absence of that inspiration that's the driving force throughout that process. Uh, and sometimes then it would be the inverse emotion um, that, that comes out of the lack of the original. Uh, and I don't know if that's the same for any of you, but that's definitely something that I deal with a lot. And as a result, nostalgia very often comes through in my work because nostalgia is a very interest- interesting collection of longing for something past generally negative affect and generally positive affect uh and and seems so applicable to almost any artistic enterprise
1: okay so i wanted to answer slime uh that he said about um being depressed is romanticized and so on yeah i think i might confuse art and philosophy so my Original thought was that um, thinking always implies suffering. Uh, I feel like uh, all philosophers are sad people because happy people don't think, they just live. And only when you are afflicted, (laughs) only when you suffer, you start thinking about things. Yeah, and then I somehow implied it to art, because in my brain, art and philosophy are very uh, close tied. But I believe it's not the case, and I agree that uh, you shouldn't be said to create art.
2: I have to just interrupt this one and tell you some artists don't think. Uh, some do, but some don't.
3: Well, you're kind of, kind of skipping ahead over there, aren't you? sneaky aren't you well <laughs> well you know just to give a bit more insight into my own processes are sharing um, i think part of you know the idea of making art for me at least is having the confidence to 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 write especially and to trust that what i'm writing is good enough and one problem i find with a lot of my writing is not that i don't have good ideas is that i I I doubt myself and I second guess how it's going to come out. I second guess the result. And while I know that I have the ideas, I know that I know I have these concepts I I want to share with the world, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that it's not going to come out the way I want it to. I'm afraid that it's going to be less than I think it deserves. And because of that, we have, you know, it causes things in my life such as not working on the piece because I, you know, I, just, I just don't feel good about it, or you know, second-guessing and then editing too harshly after the fact. Sometimes it's, it's warranted. Sometimes the piece genuinely needs some work. Other times, I think I've missed out on a lot of opportunities. And I won't say a waste of time, because I think that when something happens, that's exactly the moment it's meant to happen. It couldn't have happened any other time before because, you know, there has to be progression. There needs to be, you need to come to that sort of, you know, that that sort of uh, place in the world, that kind of peace of mind, so to speak, that you were able to produce that, that happens at that, that particular moment. But having said that, I think that I need to relax and calm down. And the one thing that is stopping me is myself, really, I need to be brave. And trust myself, trust in the process, trust that I know what I'm writing about, and if you write something honestly, and you write something true, I think you have a much better chance of getting it right and doing justice to the work than you would be able to doubt yourself uh, go-
2: going back to uh what uh, Hammuraba had said about um his experience with uh inspiration, I think he got a very good point about um, this kind of these two different kinds of inspiration, one that's kind of very branching out you have many different ideas, and they kind of just spawn and then flow forth, and other ones where you have this very grand overall concept, and you just want to get as, as much of it as you can into something. Um, and I, I think I, that definitely feels like different kinds of, of inspiration I've had. And, and back to the idea of um, you know how you translate that inspiration, I think it's a lot of matter of just trusting yourself. I certainly have ideas that I haven't attempted, and I, I would like to say yet, but I honestly can't even say if I'd ever try them because I just don't feel confident enough in my ability to translate this very clear image in my head to a physical form or to you know I don't trust my own skills to be able to make it and I feel like as as soon as I start making it I'll lose this inspiration I'll lose this image in my head because often I find I'll have a very clear piece of inspiration I'll start working on something and then these little differences start stacking up. I find I can't do something the way I wanted or the you know, proportions are off or just like this pose looks really weird or something. So I abandon that. And I, in the end, I, I start building it back up and I get inspiration throughout making the piece for a new thing. And what I have is different from what I had in the beginning, but I still feel just as satisfied. But I think there's this certain kind of melancholy for the, the loss of this original inspiration, this great idea I had at the beginning?
5: I was um, doing a documentary for an artist, that is he's a friend of mine and we were really stuck in these conversations where I was asking him um, also about inspiration but what he wanted to pass through his uh, video work art that he was doing at the moment and He couldn't tell me because he was still in the process or... Well, at the moment he was telling me that he doesn't want to pass anything. He just wants this to be likable by the people who are going to see it. And I was very, you know, taken away by this. I don't know if it was because of experience, because, like, he's doing art for a decade and uh, I'm more new into... The creative process. But what I feel is that um, I'm writing a piece about something and I want to pass this feeling of this piece, like if it's about, um, I don't know, uncanniness or about uh, ghosting, uh, haunting, I mean, not ghosting. What about you guys? Do you want to pass something specific through your works, like a feeling? Or does it get lost in the process of trying to get your thoughts right and into the technique process?
6: And the things that I do, just to answer your question, there's, uh, there are instances where something I, I create happens so quickly that nothing really gets lost in translation. What I wanted to touch on gets touched on. in a a very full way. In other cases, the process is more slow. And as a result, things become a bit more blurry, spread out over time. And I imagine that some things are lost in translation, but there are moments where the things lost in translation should have been lost, and I'm happy that they were lost. I'm happy that I am able to then find new things that weren't a part of the original concept. Uh, And when things come very quickly and nothing is lost in translation, sometimes when I look back, I lament the fact that there was something more that could have been added. But because I was able to very quickly put something together, you know, I missed out on that larger connection. Had I given myself more time, had I reflected a bit longer, I would have had more. But that's just the way things are. So that would be, I think, my my initial answer to your question. Uh, the other quick thing to make a uh, make a case for happiness, um, I do believe that, to an extent, yes, there is quite a deal of suffering that goes along with thinking. Um, however, there are moments in which happiness creates a fair amount of suffering at least for me and if it creates a fair amount of suffering i do imagine that then there is the potential for thought within that happiness and thought through that happiness towards an end i i think in some cases it's because when i am happy and i summon the courage to do something with that happiness i'm doing so with the understanding that it will pass and and it is a very fleeting thing and that can be a very terrifying thing and something that can arrest the spirit. But if someone can do something with it, you know, even if it's small, that's extremely, in my opinion, at least, extremely valuable. So, you know, yes, sadness is great. And I just think that happiness offers something. Maybe not a wider range, but there's a tremendous depth, even if it's a very narrow passage. So... When it
4: comes to my own process, um, I, I occupy different mediums, um, right now I do a lot of writing, um, I am also a, um, uh, I also draw and I do, um, uh, I I do some other stuff that I'm not going, I'm not going to say exactly what it is just for the sake of my own privacy, um, but you know the i started you know I, I started getting into um the thing i'm not going to mention because or the thing i'm not going to name because of the fact that it just was a lot of fun and um i started to take drawing more seriously and um became uh interested in actually developing my skill um as an illustrator um motivated uh by this joy and this interest in this one medium um i think that there's a great deal of just emotional complexity that goes into um anything and uh for me when going when jumping from inspiration to an actual process uh, a lot of this is really influenced by the fact that I also work full time, um, so I don't I don't really have the time to um, pour over things for hours on end and each day and continue working on it over and over again. Um, everything I do is a is a very slow and methodical pace. Um, everything from my writing to uh, my illustrations to anything else, and I always have to take my time with it. So for me, there's a great deal of intention, and that's not necessarily a bad thing for me because of the fact that um, I have a lot of things I need to develop, whether that's a drawing, a skill for drawing, or whether that's a um, uh, in my essays and in my writing. Um, whether that is a uh, a need to develop thought and to be able to think and then come back and um, chip away at those ideas and develop them further and you know rinse and repeat. Uh, but all of this is I, the different motivations come from different things. Whether that is my own impression as a queer person or Um, My experiences, my very, very, very deep experiences with abuse, um, or just a need to have some fun every once in a while and express myself and feel good about seeing the things I do and just seeing them exist in the world and imprinting my intention onto the world.
3: Yeah, I think, uh, I think, Trez, you had a very, very good question. And really, I think all artists, in a way, want to express something, even if they're doing it for fun. There's something they want to get out into the world. There's something that they there's an urge to create, to express whatever it is. There's an impetus, so to speak. For me, well, for a couple of years now, I've I've given up essentially on doing poetry because I felt it too laborious, and I put too much effort into it. Because poetry, I think, has a, has a very I think some people un- underrate poetry because there is an enormous gulf of possibilities in what you can do, how what you can express, and the precision with which you can express it. And so, my early expression of poetry was simply for fun. But in trying to express what I want to express, I think prose is a bit more forgiving. And with my prose, I like to decenter the human experience. And so I, I I think that human experience is only one experience within this, this reality or this universe and that there are so many different experiences that can be talked about. Uh, I don't think we should limit, you know, the scope of human literature to just cataloging human experiences only, but perhaps to make an attempt at the very least to show that we uh, have this awareness about other experiences and we don't take ourselves too seriously, especially, and that we acknowledge the limitations of being human and in acknowledging it, we can find what really is special about it
2: everybody's been talking about their their creative process, and I think it's very insightful to see how personal a lot of this um a, a lot of your your art your work is to you for for me however i think it's it's very different. I find it hard to really. Kind of put, you know, my my self experiences in more emotional capacity, or or just kind of these, you know, eruptions of feeling into a piece. I I like to approach my art very scholastically. I like to have a very you know a concept or something. You know, I read something interesting and I want to show that, or I'm interested in a specific kind of art and I want to show off. Uh, maybe some some features that it has, uh, and just developing a style throughout making it where it's very, I have an interest in something, and I want to maybe kind of share it or or just show how I've become proficient or, or mastered this information or taken it in. Um, some of my, my recent work I did um, last year was uh, I was doing a lot of printmaking, and my kind of unifying theme for it was buddhism because I was, I was taking a class on buddhism at the time or on east asian literature and buddhism was a prominent theme in it um and so i tried to incorporate a lot of what i had learned into it um and this this included stuff like i i learned about these um japanese um temple guardians called neo guardians and i wanted to really show off that how they're they're two different ones, ungyo and agyo, they have these very specific poses they usually do. One of them um, usually has his mouth open, another has his mouth closed. They look very angry. They're, they're very muscly. Um, oftentimes, the way they're depicted, it is none of their musculature. While very powerful, none of it's real. But basically, I'm trying to get off like these very specific pieces of information and, and learnings that I've had and share that or show at least that i understand these things which i think is very different from your very personal or or, um and and you know self-history that gives you guys inspiration
5: i think that uh, usually when you're studying something art literature writing whatever the units put you into this um like, learn the rule first, and then you can break it. And maybe Gavin was uh, referring to something like this like the formalism, the form to learn different forms. But um, I find this uh, chasm how inspiring can a work be if it's. Not personal. And of course, the difficult thing is to, when you're doing something that takes a lot of time, it's very difficult to pass something personal, a feeling or a thought. But I find that this is also the bet, let's say, to do something that is very laborious and takes a lot of time, and to be able to hold this sensation, this feeling, this thought that you wanna mediate to someone else but then again i'm thinking about what ham said that objectivity well you didn't say objectivity you said uh, that nothing is lost in the translation if something uh, gets out uh, spontaneous spontaneously but how can this objectivity yeah for me it's very difficult to pass on this objectivity of my intention through something that takes a lot of time, like um, before, I'm going to write something. Most of the time, actually, is spent on studying, and it, it gets very obsessive. You know, read this and read that, and make a huge bibliography around your subject. And then the writing part, in the end, takes the the least time of all. The most part is on the studying, and then the half most part is on the editing so I feel that yeah, a lot of things are lost there
3: Okay, so through the podcast we've we've spoken about, you know, the progression of art through history and where it stands right now and the various uh, ways it's moving forward various mediums, we've talked about street art, film, painting and so on, and after that we've moved into a section where we shared about our own artistic uh, processes and visions and what art really means to us uh you know it's a I'm really happy that we got we you know there's been so much sharing and uh it's interesting stuff. Does anyone have anything else
2: to talk about to wrap this up? I think it was i I really appreciate being able to hear everyone's um views on on inspiration and and this kind of creative process, and how it was is it was really insightful just to hear this you know people's interpretations of you know I have inspiration, but then there's also this, this birthing process, and that whole kind of idea really, I think, it helps me kind of conceptualize my creation of art as okay. well.
3: Yeah, no worries. I mean, you know, we're doing this for fun, you know. It's great to hear all of you too.
5: I also got more courage from Ham's opinion on spontaneity and not lost in translation things when something is. Week and yeah gave me more courage to experiment on this
3: yeah i think uh, you know that's the power of art in a way it, it unifies people and especially people who are trying to make art there are some commonalities that we're all going to run into and so it's a community know, yeah.
5: it's the art community or is the discord community
3: Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this just this small the small group of people coming together and sharing I mean, actually find
1: Telegram to be like a subculture thing, really. <laughs> it it I kind mean, of is, even, yeah.
2: Even yeah. with this small group of people, we all have like, you know, we have several writers, but, you know, some visual artists, too, and I think and even film. So I think there's an interesting diversity even among that, also across uh, physical areas because of these time differences we're having to schedule <laughs> around.
3: But I think you know conversations like this are the future. And as we keep going into the 21st century, we're going to find that more conversations are going to involve people from different disciplines, uh, different parts of the world. And in a way, that's that's the great thing about a globalized world. Everyone in a way can, can communicate and has a chance to communicate. And such things are now possible, you know, as yeah, it happened
1: before. I think it's that something uh, that our listeners should know. Listeners should know that um, three of us are in America and they have like late evening and somehow even night. Three of us are in Europe and we have very early morning. We're very sleepy. One
5: year, maybe that I haven't awake uh, that early. I'm, <laughs>
0: I, I'm putting more effort in here than any school Zoom class.
3: <laughs> yeah, one, one Singaporean having his lunch well, about to have his lunch. It's been sitting there for a while. So. <laughs> Thanks for you joining. Got us. Ready
2: for the day or, or to go to sleep, and I'm up at 2 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> kicked out of my own room for this.
3: Thanks for joining for joining this session guys um here's to uh the csc and uh, all the podcast episodes we'll have in the future cheers yeah cheers
2: i'm not gonna drink in the morning already but consider them <laughs> one in spirit I'm going to do this with some uh, some alcohol by my side but can't do that in the common room
5: my tea is so finished but cheers to the next one
2: Cheers. Yeah.